Several months ago, a college student came to talk to me about a jarring conversation he had over pizza and beer with his friends at school. It greatly affected him. One of those lively topics and exchanges the college kids have at maybe two in the morning over all sorts of topics being covered. And all of a sudden, faith came up. The young man described himself as a man of faith, but he wasn't exactly a fanatic, if you know what I mean. And as the conversation unfolded, he discovered that he was the only person at the table of seven or eight guys who believed in God. A strange thing to him, as he was a product of very faithful parents and Catholic education. Faith was a part of his DNA. There are various reasons why these young men lack faith. Childhood trauma for one, youthful arrogance for several, serious sin that blinded another to God's love, a budding addiction, cultural Christianity, or no faith at all in their family childhood homes. And all this happened, they all looked at him, and he panicked, found himself ill-equipped for what he believed to be a critical conversation for these men, young men around the table. He was a deer in the headlights as he called on, was called on to make the case for Christ at a moment's notice. He was clearly saddened at the secular landscape at his school and his godless peers. But he did his best to articulate that his life was infinitely better with Jesus than without him. But he also kept saying over and over to me, I wish you would have been there. You could have made the case for him far better than I. You should have been there, Father. Got my ire up a bit. I reminded him that at his baptism, he entered into the priestly, kingly, and most especially the prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ. I told him, of course, that prophecy was my job as a priest, but that it was his job too as he was called to be a prophet as well. And he needed to prepare himself for it. So I gave him a whole bunch of homework to do, different books and catechism, etc. The rest of us need to do the same. Obviously, there are far more opportunities to tell others about Jesus in the world than sitting here in church. His role amongst his peers was a critical one, far more than anything I could have done speaking peer to peer. The question was, why was he not ready to share the reason for his hope? And he comes to mind on this final Sunday of Advent. Our gospel today includes the account of Mary's visit to Elizabeth. And throughout the centuries, many have depicted the two pregnant cousins embracing outside of Elizabeth's home. One of my favorite renditions shows an elderly Elizabeth kneeling at the feet of Mary, which should have been seemingly the opposite way around. That is, Mary, the young one, should be uh, standing in, uh, or should be kneeling in front of Elizabeth. But her status as the mother of God said something different. And she asks Elizabeth, that is, the amazing prophetic question, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Visitation is a well-known scriptural story. Many are reminded of this every time we sing or recite what the prayer called the Magnificat that is immediately following this account in today's gospel. It's a song of praise that Mary sang when she visited 
her cousin Elizabeth. It begins with, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For those who pray the rosary, reflect on the visitation every time we pray the joyful mysteries. There's one aspect of the visitation that I particularly found relevant to us on the final Sunday of Advent that all ties into the story with my college friend. When they encounter one another, Elizabeth is first to speak. And filled with the Holy Spirit, she cries out in a loud voice, uttering a prophetic statement. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Mary responds in affirmation to this prophecy in the Magnificat that all generations will call me blessed. So what are the point of these prophetic utterances? A closer reading of Luke's Gospel, chapters 1 and 2, indicates that St. Luke took prophecy very seriously. For example, Zechariah prophesies. After being struck mute for doubting Elizabeth's pregnancy, his tongue is finally loosened, and he speaks about the son's name. His name will be John, John the Baptist. Later in the Gospel, Simeon prophesies that Mary's heart would be pierced through by the little child in her arms. She would see him suffer, and she would suffer as he died on the cross. Elizabeth, too, who lived through John's death at the hands of evil men. And the prophetess Anna gives witness to Jesus' fertile future, ministering as the Messiah and Lord. One thing unites Zechariah Simeon and Annas, Anna the prophetess. All of these prophecies take place in the temple. Zechariah was a temple priest. Simeon meets the Holy Family in the temple. And Anna never left the temple as she waited for the Messiah's coming. But the location of the prophecy of Mary and Elizabeth is quite different. It is at the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth out in the Judean hill country. You know, I've been there. As we drove up these hills to the church that commemorates the visitation, I thought of Mary being with child, and what a journey it must have been. The visitation is the first of a series of prophetic utterances in homes, in Luke's Gospel, and also in the Acts of the Apostles. For example, Pentecost took place in the upper room of a private household. The preaching of the faith to the Gentiles began in the household of Cornelius in Joppa. When St. Paul arrived in Europe, the first gathering of Christians was in the home of a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia. Yes, it seems that Mary and Elizabeth have set in motion a chain of events, a firm paradigm shift for the proclamation of the gospel in the early church. For God not only would speak in the temple, but in the home. The home is a key location for the dawning of the Messianic age. So there's this strange interplay between the home and the temple in Luke's gospel, just as there is a tension between the church and our homes. I mean, we come to church to share in the church's sacramental life, to receive the Eucharist, to be baptized, to get married, to be ordained. This is what God asks of us, but the church also identifies what she calls the domestic church, our homes, that should play a significant role in the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the home 
It's not where the spiritual heart is, your children will not have faith. So what an interesting thing to reflect upon as we all prepare our homes for Christmas. That as we're supposed to be the domestic church and we just let all your children come home from this Our Lady of Mount Cromo school and all the others and we're telling you go home and make your home a church. Many of us either will visit family or have family or friends visit us in the next couple of days or to gather others into our homes or the domestic church. At best for most of us, the institutional church will prophesy about the goodness of God for four hours in the next two weeks. That is, the solemnity of Christmas, and then on Sunday, the solemnity of the Holy Family. Then the following week, we celebrate the solemnity of Mary, the Mother of God, and then the solemnity of the Feast of the Epiphany, four hours. How many more hours, by word and example, will you have in the, to critically prophesy to the love of God in Jesus Christ in your homes? Have you thought about how you can change people's lives, starting with your children, but then also people who will visit, and their eternal prospects by planting simple seeds of faith by your words and example? A fervent prayer at Christmas dinner, for example. Nighttime prayers. Prayers around the nativity scene at night. Some people say the, the, the third joyful mystery of the rosary, the, the birth of the Christ at the nativity scene. Sometimes people say the whole rosary is a family. A discussion about your particular service in, your, in the church with your extended family. The joy that you have as a Christian and the promise of prayers for the new year. Or maybe it's simply the obedience of children to their parents, kids. The fourth commandment is honor your father and mother. That is a way to evangelize. Honor your father and mother. Say yes, kids. Yes, father. Yeah. Good idea. Or extra patience for your children that might change another person's heart. Or, sadly, are we more equipped to argue and to quibble about things that have little consequence for the salvation of souls? You know, hurt feelings of the past, past squabbles, bragging, gossiping, and so on. What if a Christmas celebration in your home is someone's only chance to know God? I know another college student who's very faithful, his family is not, and he is hosting a Bible study for his whole family over Christmas. A family that is sometimes hostile to faith. God bless him. He's trying so hard. I know a woman who plans a service project for her family every time they gather for Christmas. She makes it fun and life-giving and in the Lord. I know another family, I love this one, another family that asks their children to tithe one gift of their own choosing each Christmas that is under the tree that is given away to the poor. I mean, can you imagine? I would have thrown a huge fit that I'd give one of my gifts away. But what a beautiful thing, a beautiful way to teach their children about the service of the poor. Throughout Advent, we talk about the immediate nature of faith. Stay awake and alert, the scripture says. You know not the day or the hour of the Lord's return. After all of the manic preparations for this holiday, after Christmas, we will rest. It's the Christmas season in your domestic church. I hope that in your domestic church, you are prepared to rest in the Lord which for someone in your family or friends could make all the difference in their lives. 
So may we give our family and friends the greatest gift this Christmas, and that is the seeds of faith.